Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. Smoke alerted an officer on patrol to the fire at a shopping complex in Austin, Texas. It was shortly before midnight on Friday, December 6, 1991, when he called it in to dispatch. Firefighters raced to the I-can't-believe-it's-yogurt shop, focused only on putting out the flames and saving the surrounding businesses. That is, until one of the first responders saw the horrifying sight of a human foot sticking out from some debris. Immediately, police were informed that a body had been found, but before Detective Sergeant John Jones could arrive on the scene, dispatch updated him, saying, Make that four bodies. In this episode of Anatomy of Murder, we will be discussing the tragic deaths of four teenage girls that became known as the Austin Yogurt Shop Murders. Seventeen-year-olds Eliza Thomas and Jennifer Harbison were your average high school girls, both working at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop in order to make some spending money. They had worked closing together many times in the past, and on the night of December 6th, the girls had an easier shift ahead of them, as Jennifer's 15-year-old sister Sarah and her 13-year-old friend Amy Ayers would be coming a few hours before shift end in order for Jennifer to drive them home for a sleepover. Sarah Harbison had celebrated her 15th birthday only five weeks before the night of the murders. She was a junior varsity cheerleader and raised lambs for the Travis County Livestock Show and Rodeo. Her older sister was also an avid athlete. Jennifer was the manager of her high school drill team, as well as a member of the track team. 17-year-old Eliza loved to read and dance. Her mother believed she would be a writer someday. The youngest of the teens, Amy, was still in middle school. She was active on the yearbook staff and skillfully creative. She had won the arts and crafts division at the local fair with her needlepoint. All four girls were friendly with each other. They were members of the Future Farmers of America and were known to be animal lovers, with both Eliza Thomas and Amy Ayers even wanting to be veterinarians in the future. These bright and energetic teens were well-loved in their community. The loss of those young lives 
and the sheer depravity of their last night alive would shake Austin even to this day. When recounting the crime scene, Detective Mike Huckabay said it was dark inside, smoky, burned insulation everywhere, just the cold feeling of death. The lead detective, John Jones, was equally shaken. He commented by saying, For a long time I shut out what I saw, just wholesale carnage. We knew immediately that they were kids. The girls were found in the prep area of the store. Two were stacked on top of each other, while another girl was found nearby. It's believed that the third victim had also been stacked with the other girls, but was knocked loose due to the water pressure from the hoses while fighting the fire. As the debris covering their bodies was removed, the viciousness of the crimes became apparent. Their legs were spread, and it was clear that the girls had been sexually assaulted. An ice cream scoop found between Sarah's legs had also been used in the sexual assault. She was naked and severely charred. She had been gagged and her hands were bound behind her back with a pair of panties. Sarah died from a shot through the back of the head. A 22 caliber bullet was later recovered from her brain. Jennifer's naked body was not bound, but she was discovered with her hands behind her back her bindings likely having been destroyed in the fire. She was shot through the back of the head with a 22 caliber weapon as well. Jennifer had suffered the most damage from the fire. She could only be identified during her autopsy. Eliza's naked body was found much in the same way as the other girls. She had been bound, gagged, and shot in the back of the head, also with a 22. Due to her burns, it was unclear if Eliza had been sexually assaulted, but it was likely she had suffered the same fate. The only one of the teens who was found separately was 13-year-old Amy. It's theorized that she continued to struggle even after being shot in the head with the 22 and had dragged herself away from her attackers. She had a sock-like material tied around her neck and it was determined during her autopsy that she had been manually strangled, but not fatally. She also suffered a strike to the face as she had a mark on her lower lip. Amy was the least harmed in the fire, but she still suffered third-degree burns to nearly 30% of her body. She had two contact gunshot wounds, one on the top left side of her head and the other behind her left ear. The first was caused by the 22, but did not enter her brain like the other victims. The second gunshot wound was caused by a 380 that passed through the brain and exited through Amy's cheek and jawline. Horrifyingly, Amy was still alive when first responders arrived. However, she soon succumbed to her extensive injuries and died in the yogurt shop along with the other girls. When firefighters arrived on the scene, the front door of the store had been locked, but the back door was propped open. Detectives would later learn that this was highly unusual as at no point did the girls have any reason to open that door. An arson investigator for the Austin Fire Department initially concluded that the fire had been started on the shelves in the storage area and then had spread up the wall, across the ceiling, and down the opposite wall. This conclusion would severely hamper the case. First responders reported no scent of an accelerant, and with the assumption that the ignition point had been the shelf, meant the scene was never tested for any sort of accelerant. It would be eight years later 
when a special agent of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms reviewed the photographic evidence. Based on his analysis of the burn patterns, the damage to the girls' bodies, and the relative amount of damage to other items in the area, he concluded that the perpetrators had directly set fire to the bodies of the victims. The autopsy report also revealed an enormously high BTU output, indicating the probable use of gasoline to burn the bodies. The destruction caused not only by the fire, but also by the efforts to put out the blaze left investigators with very little in the way of evidence, as well as the mistakes in understanding how the fire was set further complicated the investigation. Despite all the difficulties facing them, they weren't willing to give up. Detective Jones called in the assistance of other agencies like ATF in order to chase down every available lead. They would relentlessly pursue justice for the innocence that was lost that night. Putting together the details of that December night proved a challenge for Detectives Jones and Huckabay. Within the first two years of the investigation, near 5,000 leads were looked into by the task force, none leading to an arrest. A public plea was made for anyone who had visited the yogurt shop that day to speak to police. One customer of the shop happened to be a former officer named Daryl Croft. Somewhere between 9.30 and 10 p.m. on the night of the 6th, Daryl came into the shop to get yogurt for himself and two friends. While there, he noticed a suspicious individual who had been lingering in the shop for some time. The man was wearing a military fatigue-style jacket and allowed customer after customer to go ahead of him in line. When the stranger spoke to Croft, he asked if he was a cop. This further raised Daryl's suspicions, so he refused to go ahead of the man in line. When the suspicious individual finally approached the counter, the man only ordered a soda, and after he paid, went around the counter and disappeared into the back room. Daryl asked where the man had gone, and Eliza replied that she had allowed the man to use the restroom. Feeling uneasy, Croft lingered even after his order was ready, However, the man never re-emerged from the back of the store, and eventually, Daryl left. The individual in the military jacket has never come forward and has never been identified. Another set of customers who came forward with information was a married couple who arrived at the yogurt shop not long before 11 p.m., the time at which the store closed. They stated that they saw two young men seated in a booth near the counter, both drinking sodas and not eating yogurt. As it was close to the end of the night, Eliza and Jennifer had long since begun cleaning up the store. Investigators noted that the chairs in the store were stacked atop tables, napkin dispensers were refilled. In fact, all the tables and booths had been cleaned, all that is, except for the one where the men were seated. These individuals also have never been identified or have come forward. At one point, the task force had 342 suspects and as many as 50 confessions for the crime. One such confession was by Kenneth Allen McDuff, a notorious Texas serial killer. Also known as the Broomstick Murderer, McDuff was convicted of killing three teenagers and had repeatedly sexually assaulted his female victim before breaking her neck with a broomstick. 
Despite the similarity in the crime, McDuff was ruled out as DNA did not match any of the samples from the yogurt shop murders. Another confession was by Carlos Saavedra. According to the Mexican police, Saavedra confessed to the November 1991 sexual assault of an Austin woman, as well as to the yogurt shop murders. Authorities located and arrested Carlos Saavedra and Alberto Cortez in Mexico in October of 1992. The two men were tried and convicted. However, they were later released from custody when Saavedra recanted the confession. It was then discovered his interrogation by Mexican police involved the use of a Coke bottle filled with water and cayenne pepper, which was poured down his nose until he confessed. Saavedra denies any knowledge of who killed the girls. As more time passed and with no conclusion in sight, the chances of finding who was truly responsible for killing four innocent teenagers seemed less and less likely. In a sea of potential leads and confessions, frustration would begin to grow. It seemed no matter their efforts, the detectives continued to come up empty. For several years, the task force chased down every possible lead. They went after Satanists and serial killers alike. However, as more and more time passed, the task force shrunk, and eventually even Detective Jones was promoted and the case passed on from his care. As the investigation fell into new hands, it would take another tragic turn due to a severe miscarriage of justice. Next time on Anatomy of Murder, forced confessions, coercion with a weapon, and even another death will be linked to this truly horrific case. When Officer Frank Wilson and his rookie partner conducted a traffic stop on the night of December 23, 2010, the tragic homicide of four teenage girls at a yogurt shop likely never crossed their minds. The same cannot be said for Maurice Pierce, one of the young men who was suspected of the crime. Pierce suffered from intense anxiety and paranoia relating to law enforcement. When the officers pulled him over, Maurice ran. Wilson pursued Maurice on foot, but when he caught up, a struggle ensued. Pierce grabbed a knife from the officer's belt and stabbed wildly. He cut into Wilson's neck, severing his carotid artery. Despite his injuries, the officer was able to draw his firearm and shot his attacker. Officer Frank Wilson survived the injuries he sustained that night. However, Maurice Pierce did not. Maurice died afraid and alone. His greatest fears realized. But his paranoia and distrust of law enforcement had a history, and it was one that would leave most anyone traumatized as well. But his trauma, unfortunately, would be his undoing. In this episode of Anatomy of Murder, the mishandling of this infamous case is steeped in coercion, corruption, and forced confessions. So let's begin. When the original investigators were promoted, the yogurt shop murders fell onto the shoulders of other officers. On August 6, 1999, six investigators were assigned the case and began dissecting all of the old leads. One of these leads had been the arrest of a young Maurice Pierce. 
1991, eight days after the murders, Pierce was arrested in the North Cross Mall for carrying a loaded 22 caliber revolver. Maurice was only 16 at the time and had bragged to his friend Forrest Wellborn that the gun had been used in the murder. However, upon interrogation, the lead didn't pan out and the ballistics for the gun didn't match. Despite that fact, the new investigators decided to pursue Maurice Pierce as a suspect along with his three friends, Forrest Wellborn, Robert Springsteen, and Michael Scott. In 1991, the four friends had only been teenagers. Both Springsteen and Scott were 17, Pierce was a year younger, and Forrest Wellborn was the youngest of the group at 15 years old. Springsteen was described as being someone who would always speak their mind, while in contrast, Forrest was thought to be soft-spoken. Michael faced some more unique challenges. He was enrolled in special education and had to repeat the 10th grade. He was, however, considered the joker of the group. The teens were not angels, and all eventually dropped out of high school and had some minor run-ins with the law. In fact, just days after the murders, the group admitted to joyriding, driving around at dangerous speeds recklessly. However, none of the boys were ever known to be violent. The detectives thought differently, however. It's not clear why they chose to zero in on these four men, but within a month of renewing the investigation, they managed to get a confession from one of them. How the officers managed to get that confession is what would eventually throw the entire case into turmoil. Michael Scott was picked up by Austin police in the parking lot at his wife's work. Over the course of 11 hours of being interviewed, Scott would tell the detectives that he and his friends had gone to the yogurt shop in order to rob the business and had murdered the girls in the process. He claimed they had set the fire in order to cover their tracks. In total, Scott was interrogated over 20 hours in the span of a few days, and once officers had gotten him to admit to going to the yogurt shop that day, they weren't willing to let up on their lead. Investigators would repeatedly feed Scott information throughout their questioning. On one occasion, an officer would leak a critical fact when he asked, So one of the girls you're saying was shot twice? Scott said nothing about this up to that time, but he soon confirmed this fact for the officers. In fact, during the interview, he would repeatedly get facts wrong, only to correct them with continued prodding from the police, who dispensed leading question after leading question. He first said that the victims were clothed, then he said that they were partially naked, then fully naked. He said that the girls' hands were tied with an electric extension cord, then with napkins, then with shirts or jeans or undergarments. Scott had suggested that the girls had been strangled, bludgeoned, kicked, stabbed, and shot. He even inaccurately stated that one of the girls had been killed behind the shop counter. At one point, an investigator even verbally attacked Scott, saying, Do you want to live with this the rest of your f***ing life? and followed it by insinuating that his friends had already implicated him in the murders. Mike, look at me. You remember what happened? You were inside there, right? I don't... You're remembering what happened? I don't actually remember going in the building. If you were in the building, you were in there with me. I don't believe that, Michael. You don't remember no one in there. And you know you were in there. Did you shoot any of those girls? No, sir. Then tell us what f***ing happened. 
What are those two boys and those girls? You want to live with this the rest of your life? No, I don't. Then get it out right now. They're you over. They're the ones that shot the girls. Do it. What did you see happen? The most serious incident to take place during Scott's questioning occurred on the second day. Officers decided to confront him with the 22 caliber revolver that Maurice Pierce was carrying when he was arrested after the murders. An investigator showed the gun to Michael Scott and then proceeded to walk behind him. The officer put the gun to Scott's head and asked him if that was the weapon he used to shoot someone. Only at that point did Scott say yes to the officer's question. That brought back the memories, didn't it? I remember looking at the gun. You ever seen that gun before? I'm not positive. Does that look like the gun you've seen before? It looks like the gun I've seen before, but I'm not positive. Is that the gun you shot somebody with, Mike? I don't. Is that the gun you walked up behind somebody with and shot the head? Is that the one? Talk to me, Mike. Yes, sir. You did that, didn't you? Yes, sir. We've been stopping some more doors, haven't we, Mike? Not really. You sure? Yes, sir. A few minutes later, he was given a 30-minute break. When questioning resumed, Scott told the officer, You scared the shit out of me. The officer replied, I meant to scare the shit out of you. With Michael Scott's confession in hand, the police began to build a case against the other men who they claimed had been at the scene that night. Robert Springsteen was brought in for questioning. He fiercely claimed his innocence during the interview to begin with, steadfast that he had not been there that night, no matter how the police continued to claim that he had been. The problem is, we got to get rid of our options. Our options don't give you any more truth than I've already given where do we go from here? Why can't you? Because you're going to dig yourself into that thing? Well, you're already there. You've already dug the hole. The hole's there. Oh, then I'm in it. Uh, I don't know. That's what I keep telling you guys. I mean, my God, this was seven years ago. But this is one of the most significant things that ever happened in your life. That's what I keep trying to explain to you. If I was there and I partook in this, I would remember these things. And you do remember these things. No, I don't. No, I do not. You're the coldest guy I've ever talked to in my life. Are you a cold-blooded murderer? No, sir, I'm not. I, I think you are. I think Maurice is absolutely true about you. Well, then... You're the coldest guy I've ever talked to. Pardon me? Then let's take whatever actions we need to take. If that's what you believe, and that's where you think this case needs to go, then let's go there. We don't want to go there. But I'm doing everything I can and have exceeded my limits of helping you guys. Where do we go now? Eventually, similar to Scott, Robert caved into the police and confessed. When reflecting on the interrogation, Springsteen was quoted as saying, I was berated and berated and berated by the police officers until they obtained what it was they wanted to hear. They were not going to allow me to leave, and basically, they broke me down. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform. 
and find out if your hometown is haunted. Through their tactics of fear and intimidation, police were able to implicate the four men in the crime. With the confessions in hand, investigators would build their case to explain what had happened the night of the yogurt shop murders. According to the confessions, the four boys were at the food court in North Cross Mall on the night of December 6, 1991. Maurice Pierce mentioned that he needed money and allegedly suggested committing a robbery. The young men left the mall and began to drive around the neighborhood in Pierce's car and it was decided that the yogurt shop would be the location for the robbery. Later that night, three of the teens entered the shop through the back door which had been propped open by Robert with an empty pack of cigarettes earlier in the day. Michael Scott said he heard one of the girls say to Pierce that the money had been dropped into the safe, and then heard one of the girls get slapped. Investigators linked this to the bruise on Amy Ayer's lower lip. Springsteen asked Scott to come help him in the back of the shop. When he entered, he found Springsteen removing the girl's clothes. The girls were crying and begging not to be killed, so Scott decided to gag them, using something he remembered as white like terry cloth. Scott claimed he returned to the front of the shop and that's when he heard Pierce shout, Where the f*** is the rest of the money? Followed by a gunshot. Scott went to the back of the shop to see what had happened and found one of the girls dead. Pierce repeated his demand for money to a second girl, then there was a second gunshot. Meanwhile, Springsteen was assaulting one of the other girls. When Scott walked in on this, Springsteen told him to do one of the other girls. Afraid of what Springsteen might do, Scott complied and pretended to have sex with the girl. Pierce later handed Scott the revolver and told him to finish her. Scott confessed that he had pointed the gun at the back of the girl's head and fired. Robert told Scott to burn the place. Scott recounted how he gathered up napkins, cups, and other items and piled them on top of the bodies before spraying them with lighter fluid. He lit the blaze and ran out to the car that Wellborn had kept running for them. The men drove off into the night, only $540 richer for their efforts, and all at the expense of ending four young girls' lives. Nearly a decade after the murders, the trials began. Both Scott and Springsteen signed written confessions implicating each other. Prosecutors used Springsteen's confession and corroborated it with parts of Michael Scott's written confession to build their case. For three weeks, the families listened to the horrible recounting of the murders. 
The parents of the victims were convinced that the police had arrested the right men and that Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott had killed their little girls. In May of 2001, after 13 hours of deliberation, the jurors agreed and convicted Robert Springsteen of the capital murder of Amy Ayers and sentenced him to death. The following year, Michael Scott was found guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. Maurice Pierce and Forrest Wellborn were also arrested on four counts of capital murder. However, Wellborn was released when a jury failed to indict him. And Pierce was released when the district attorney announced that there was not enough evidence to secure a conviction. Unfortunately, his release didn't do much to calm the trauma he had instilled in his mind after such horrifying circumstances, and he would only be killed sometime later when pulled aside by police. Because of what law enforcement had already done to him before, he became scared and desperate, and it cost him his life. Both men appealed their convictions and unflinchingly claimed their innocence. They cited the improper interrogation techniques as the reason for their confessions. A judge did agree that the tactics used by officers went against protocol, but did not constitute throwing out the confessions. However, after years behind bars, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturned the conviction of Robert Springsteen and subsequently Michael Scott. The ruling stated that the men's confessions were improperly used in the trials because the defense had no prior opportunity to cross-examine the statements and it went against their Sixth Amendment right to confront the witness. The pair were not found innocent, but as their rights had been violated, a judge ordered them to be released pending possible retrials. Those retrials were put on hold when DNA evidence that had been found on one of the girls did not match any of the suspect's DNA. Springsteen filed a wrongful conviction case seeking compensation in the sum of $720,000 for his nine years behind bars. Due to the legal limbo of the conviction being overturned but not being found innocent, the men have not been completely exonerated and therefore have not received any compensation for the years that they were incarcerated. To this day, many citizens of Austin still believe these men to be cold-blooded murderers who got away with their crime, and until the case has been solved and the perpetrators imprisoned, the crimes will continue to hang over their heads. The sad fact remains that to this day, the senseless death of four innocent girls remains unsolved. Their murderers never faced justice for extinguishing the life of Jennifer and Sarah Harbison, Eliza Thomas, and Amy Ayers. Their loss is felt by their family and the community alike. However, a hope remains. DNA evidence collected that night may still lead to the killer and a conviction. The Austin police are adamant that the case has not been forgotten and that they are committed to seeking justice for the victims and their families. All anyone can do is wait and hope for justice to be served, not only for the surviving loved ones left behind for so long without any true answers, but for those who lost their lives so tragically early 
and for those wrongfully accused, whose lives have been destroyed over the actions of another. If you have any information about these crimes, please call Austin Crime Stoppers at 512-472-TIPS or the APD Cold Case Unit at 512-477-3588. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.